Welcome everyone to episode two of Pete Talks to the People. Today we have Marta Almanderdes Langland, who is my old supervisor and an educator. So another education talk. And it's one of those conversations, though it went for over an hour, I could have kept doing it all day. There was so much insight, so many different things I could have dove deep into. But I think it's a very interesting and good conversation. A couple things is, as we tend to do, we use some jargon and some acronyms. And I want to make sure that people know uh, what those mean. You hear the term TAG, uh, means talented and gifted. Sometimes you hear the term SPED, that's a short um, shortening of special education. And IEP is an individual education plan. So I hope you enjoy the episode and follow my Instagram at Pete Talks to the People. And here you go. Welcome to the program. Um, I am joined today by Marta Almandaris Langlin, who is a teacher, educator, equity consultant, social justice activist, and a parent to a second grader and preschooler. Currently, Marta is a doctoral student finishing her dissertation in educational leadership with a focus on social justice and policy. She is an immigrant from El Salvador and holds slightly to her Salvadania culture. Marta believes that equitable education can be achieved in partnership with parents, teachers, and students. Marta, thank you very much for joining us and welcome to the program. How are you doing today? Thank you for having me. I'm doing great now talking to you. You were my um, advisor or my boss uh, when I was in grad school. And, you know, I, I learned so much from you that I really wanted to have you on the program because I think the things you taught me, many people need to know. So much of what I know that your passion came from, where you come from, not just physically, but I would love for you to just kind of tell me your journey, how you got here, how it got you where you are. Okay, cool. And thank you for that nice what we say, piropo, um, which is compliment, right? I think, so to start off, I'm an immigrante. That's very tightly to who I am. I immigrated here in 98, knowing minimal, if any, English. Um, after the Civil War in El Salvador, broke in the 80s and 90s, and our documents um, took about over a decade to be processed by the U.S. Embassy. And we're one of the, we're some of the privileges, privileged people to be able to immigrate with documents for a better future uh, for our legacy, for, for our people, for our family. Like Leila Saad says, we were to be good ancestors. So in, in that, my parents saw an opportunity to be a good ancestor for those that come after us and to make our ancestors that have gone before us proud as well. Uh, I remember standing at the airport and also there my parents looking very directly and being like, we're immigrating, not because we necessarily need to, because we know you would be great no matter what, because we love you. But we're immigrating because of USA, the letters USA on any document that you hold will be more valuable to you in the long run. That's the only reason why we're doing this. Um, and you are to go to school, you are to go to college. There's no other choice, right? So as an 11 year old, I was like, oh, okay, sounds great. <laughs> and I had a younger brother and an older brother and we immigrated to Corbett. Uh, and the reason why we immigrated to Corbett is because um, my parents helped start an orphanage in El Salvador. And that orphanage, the, the person who ponied up the money for that orphanage uh, lived in Corbett and she said, you can come and stay with us, that's fine, uh, until you get your feet under you. So we decided to do that and my brothers and I became the, the only Latinx kids in the whole entire school in Corbett, which was a whole nother ball game. We were the first day that we got to work and it was hailing, I had never seen hail in my whole entire life. And I thought we were going to die. We were living out in the woods in Corbett, very rural area, which I did not understand, knowing that I came from El Salvador and I was very much a city person. Um, we went to malls, you know, and things of that sort. That was our entertainment. Um, so being in something so rural was a culture shock in itself but uh, didn't stop us from the overall mission that we had, which was to come over here, learn English, and get a higher education. 
And for those that don't know about Corbett, Oregon, um, it's just outside of Portland. It's an interesting place and it's been in the news very recently. Um, we are taping this in the midst of the wildfires when we all look outside of our windows. Um, Portland is covered in smoke and the whole region. Mm -hmm. Corbett was recently in the news because citizens had set up armed checkpoints to check to see if the Antifa fire starters were going to be going through there. Um, a conspiracy theory that had made it through some of the right wing Facebook pages. So that's uh, the Corbett, Oregon that Mark is talking about. Yes, very much so. Very much so. Even now, you know, the reality that anti-racism is alive and well in all areas. It doesn't matter if you're in the rural or an urban area. It sounds like, you know, your education was a primary uh, focus for your family. Is that what made you go into education or is there anything in your no. life? No, the thing that made me go into education was um, I love teaching. Uh, and I remember sitting in El Salvador in my back steps of our house, in the cement steps, and going to preschool or kindergarten and coming back and teaching everything that I had learned that day to my younger brother. And, you like that? Uh, oh, I loved it. And I knew that, like, a lot of people um, and a lot of women sometimes gasp when I say this, but I knew I was to become an educator even before I decided to become a mother. Like being an educator is is part of my soul, is part of my being, is is I get energy from teaching. I get um I get breath and life from teaching. Uh, so being a teacher was never a doubt in my mind. So much so that um, I knew that I wanted to teach social studies. I knew that I wanted to teach high school. And I went to PSU, got my high school degree, started on Saturday, took a delicious nap on Sunday, and started graduate school for, uh, to get my master's in, teacher, in teaching on Monday. Like I didn't even take a break. I knew that this was where my life belonged and I was not willing to let it go at any cost. You know, that's a fantastic drive and focus. And though I have to ask, did your little brother enjoy going to school twice? <laughs> I don't know, but he was valedictorian of his class, and I think he should give me credit for it. So. Oh, I, I sure hope you were in the speech. <laughs> I don't remember if I was on the speech. So that was a long time ago. But um, I think if anything, both my siblings and I can say that we have made our parents proud and the work that we do. Uh, we're all involved in some type of social service work. Um, and we, and that's very much so connected to being and growing up with kids from the orphanage coming to our home and uh, sharing my toys and sharing my parents and uh, sharing the food that I had and knowing very specifically that, um, which is the saying that we have in our family is that everything we have we pull with open hands. That, that, that tools and things, they can come and go, but we share all, we share everything. Um, and I think because of that, there was no other choice than for me to go into education because that was a tool in which I could hold the knowledge and the experiences that I had and share with others. And in the same way, learn from my students. I have learned so much from my students and I can, I am such a fan of Gen Z right now. They are incredible. I am obsessed with Gen Z. They're so amazing and so driven and so willing to risk, willing to give up for the benefit of the, benefit of the whole, which is what's going to be necessary for not only as an educational system, but as a, as a society to be able to move forward if we're going to make it somewhere past anything, right? No, I think it's, I mean, that's a great point. I mean, we, we're doing more with less at every level of society right now. We're doing more with less at education. We're doing more with less for younger people who are, you know, graduating with incredible amounts of debt. Everybody has to do more with less right now. And it is taking that creativity of Gen Z. And, and to be honest, I don't know all those one's past Gen Z, but everybody right now, I think the younger people, I, I see it in my classes, are, are really inspiring. 
Um, I would love to ask, you know, you go right into education, you're focused, you know what you want to do. I got to know you, you know, through the, through the school and through kind of the idea of becoming an anti-racist educator. And mm -hmm. when do you think you started focusing on that as the part of education you were going to focus on? I think I started focusing on it. I, well, actually, I think I had no choice but to focus on it, truthfully. When, when you encounter high school students in your classroom who feel like they have arrived home just because you have the same skin color as they have, and you're the only one in the whole entire school or in the, the department that's, that looks like them and that speaks like them, um, then you have no other choice than to love sacrificially those students to the point that you become anti-racist in your pedagogy and what you do because you, under, you, become to under, you come to understand that the educational system is rooted in white supremacy. So I don't think I ever, if I was to be a good educator that loves sacrificially my students, I don't think I had a choice than to be anti-racist from the beginning. I remember you challenging me um, early on that the education system was rooted in white supremacy. And it was a very hard concept for me to wrap my head around because we're teachers, we're the good guys. You know, we are the ones who buy chalk with, or I guess not chalk anymore, but we buy materials out of our own pockets. How could we be part of the problem? What specifically kind of do you mean by, you know, white supremacy in the education system? Well, I think when we see, we hear white supremacy, we think of whiteness in itself, right? But we don't think also as well of, of patriarchy, right? And the reality is the educational system was founded to benefit white males that were upper, upper class. And those were the individuals that had access to education, right? That's how the education system became to be. And I think if and we take these foundational ideologies from when education started of what it is education is supposed to be even all the way back to Plato. And we realize that who is in that conversation and who is missing within the conversation that is, being, that is, is, is occurring. And that is just white support. Those ideals of like you have to have the right to learn Every child has to go to school and then school looks like this um, and we have to walk in lines. Every single thing that we do, I question why. Why do we do that? What's the goal of that? What, if it is a good goal, great. What could be the negative goals of it? So I'm not saying that it's bad for students to walk in a line, right? That is not necessarily a bad thing. But when I see that that is similar to walking in the line of prison, then I wonder, hmm, is there a different way to do this, right? Knowing that systematic racism exists and black and brown um, students are more incarcerated, incarcerated than any other population, it makes me wonder how we train our babies to be able to do this. Have we taught them to be able to tolerate walking in lines? how we taught them to stay in their step, right? And I think abolitionist, anti-racist pedagogy teaches you that there has to be room to question not only the good thing, but also the bad things, right? And I think it makes you question, why do we do what we do and how we do it? And it opens the possibility for something different to be present in the formation and in the partnership of community. So what does that look like for your students to be able to participate in democratic scholarship and say, this is what I wanna study. Can we study that all together, right? What is the goal of that? Let's look at the state standards. What, what are the state standards trying to teach you, okay? What is something that you see that's missing and having that conversation rather than just saying, I, as a teacher, have to teach the state standards and there's no other choice. So because I, as a teacher, have to teach the state standards, this is the way that I'm going to do it without input from others. 
If you were going to be start, you know, you're the superintendent now of the schools, you're starting a school, where would you start? Because I agree with you, the system is set up from years and years and years of, you know, racism and patriarchy that have created the system now. And there's great people working against it. So I think we have made strides. There's, and there's people really trying to break down that system. But we still have generally the same school system we've had for the past oh, yeah. 50, 100 years. Where would you start? What would you, what would be your, your first hundred days goal? I've thought about that a lot just because I've thought about in 20 years, do I want to be a superintendent, right? Mm -hmm. um, I have big plans and dreams, right? Um, and I think I would start by listening to parents, honestly. I think a lot of the time, and not just parents, but also kiddos. I think a lot of the time, a lot of people that have gone to education have stayed in that educational system or like your kids go to the same school that you went to while you were a kiddo, right? And I think for a lot of BIPOC individuals, we forget specifically in Oregon and, and Portland knowing its history, that just 20 years ago, we were still busing individuals 20 30 years ago we were still busing individuals i think of Dyer, dr diane watson who was uh instrumental in that right uh and and she was and her and her sister were bused to a different area school and they were called the black kids the good black kids and she's she's in her 40s she's not that old she, this is recent history and i think there's a lot of healing that needs to occur within that if we're even able to move forward we need to invite parents into the school and in conversation with one another and we need to create a space for kiddos to also tell their experience i think we always hear the disgruntled experience of like that one teacher that that does badly to me but we also don't hear the, from the kiddos the good things that are happening as well so i think i would start with a lot of listening and i think ending color evasive language. I I am really passionate about this. I don't I want to stop calling our ELO kids ELO and just call them for what they truly are. Like if you are a Somali child, I wanna honor your Somali roots. If you are a Mexican child, I wanna honor that as well. And um honor your identity and honor the identity of your parents. If you're a Thai kid I want to know when were you designated to be a tag kid? Uh, is that still a thing that you want to be designated as? Just because I've seen a lot of, at the high school level, I've seen a lot of uh, tag thing kids come in because I used to teach the IB courses and they're so stressed out and so not desiring to be that kid anymore. But because they got this label in third grade, they cannot let go of it. Um, so I, I actually just want people to tell me how they want to identify themselves as and how they see themselves as, rather than me going with a roster of like, oh, you're a tech kid, you're an EMF kid, you are a student INS is an ISC, so which is um, the special ed classrooms, right? Um, oh, you belong in this strand, you belong in this strand, you belong in this strand. There is something good to say about systems like in Norway, in which at the middle school, high school level, students choose which path they are to take. And I think that is something that's missing for us. And I think that as well, it would vary if I was focusing more on elementary or middle school or high school. They all have different needs at each point and different communication skills. So it's a very yeah. busy hundred days. Um, yeah. But, yeah. I no, but a I great team. <laughs> I want to unpack a couple of those things a little bit, and especially talk about going to the parents. Um, one of the, I, I agree with you, and I think parents, I would love for the parents to be more involved. And, you know, this is my second year teaching, so I'm obviously an expert. Um, <laughs> but even in these two years, I realize that we all want parents to be more involved, but the heavy lifting parents have to do to get involved is very difficult. Um, this year, because we are doing comprehensive distance learning, I, everybody called everybody in their advisory class, all the families, to check in on them, see if they need anything, see, 
if they have any questions about the school. And this was profound to me, profound experience for me because I now had my advisory class. I had a connection with every kid. I had families from all different backgrounds, different languages, things that I would have never known. It would have probably taken me a month to figure that out um, if they were just coming to my class for 20 minutes a day. But now because I was talking to every single parent, reaching out to them oftentimes multiple times in multiple scenarios, I'm texting some, I'm calling some, I'm emailing some, whatever's best for them. I now have a window into each of all 25 of those households, um, which, and it also means when I have to call again, whether for a great thing that student did or for a disciplinary issue, my first call to them is not like, hey, your kid typed something wrong in the chat room. Ooh. My first, you know, they've already talked to me. They've already heard from me. They already know that I've reached out to them. So it made me start to think a lot about how can we reach families where they are so they don't have to come to the back to school night from five to 10 at the gym. So they don't have to leap over the barriers to take out time from their often very busy lives to participate in school. What can we do to better get the parents involved and listen to them more so we could hear those voices that for too many years have not been heard. I think what you're saying is that how do we bring back humanity to education? Honestly. And I think that's straight up what has been missing in a lot of times, right? Is that we have been really good at dehumanizing one another or humanizing by proxy, right? Like this kid acts this way in my class Therefore, I think their parents are this. When there's no communication between the teacher and the parent, right? It's so humanization of uh, individual by proxy. I think what is really sad is that it takes a freaking global pandemic for us to realize that we need to talk to one another. Without a doubt. I mean, it's the first feedback I gave to my administration was, this has to be done every year from now on. Yeah. This is. This is where we start the school year. The school year does not start on September 1st or whatever dates it is. The school year starts the day we start calling parents and start calling families and guardians and you know, learning about those situations because there's no way we can educate students just in schools. No, no. One of my big you know, things I've been focusing on with distance learning is every single thing is an education moment getting kicked off the internet and then having the wherewithal and the grit to come back, but the uh, resilience, that's better. Um, the resilience to get back on is a learning moment. Um, have, figuring out what your classes are in distance learning is a learning moment. Being able to go to a teacher and say, hey, I'm having a really bad day. I'm gonna turn my screen off today is a learning moment. Those are things that I think is part of this education is why I'm actually somewhat optimistic about it, because those are things we wouldn't be able to teach in a classroom. Mm -hmm. And I think for me, it's the partnership that can occur, right? As a parent of an elementary school kid, that happened to my child in which the internet kicked off this teacher, right? And teacher's gone, the kids are still standing there, and I'm just like, let's play a game <laughs> as a parent, right? And knowing who your key parents are at each grade level for each class is necessary. So you can take, send like a text, hey, I got kicked off. Can you please let everybody know, right? And I think having that connection is necessary, right? Is being willing to connect with one another in a way that we have never connected before. Um, I, I find it interesting, this whole talk to each other are called your advisory. And I wonder, how, was that a lot of work? Did it feel like an overreaching amount of work for you as an educator to do that? It didn't feel like an overreaching amount of work. It did feel a lot of, like a lot of work. I hate cold calling people. I hate calling parents, not because of anything, just because you don't know what you're gonna get. You know, um, it's, it's just an uncomfortable thing as someone who doesn't just like to call people randomly on the phone. So it's more the mechanics of it that are uncomfortable, but I'll say after the first few calls, when I started actually talking to parents, then I got excited about it. Then I really enjoyed it. Then I saw myself as the conduit between a large school bureaucracy that I could barely navigate to a parent who has, you know, unless they work in the school system, it's just a huge monolith, that's the school. 
It's the difference between a teacher and an administrator and an IA and all that. That doesn't mean too much to a parent. They, they are talking to the school and if they tell me something, they want the same action done as if they told the principal. That's right. And why wouldn't they? So I enjoyed that part of it being like that conduit um, to the school and hopefully demystifying the school a little bit to the parents and being able to be like, okay, yeah, oh, I'm sorry your Chromebook is broken. Well, let me find out the days that you could replace it. So I enjoyed that. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about, you, you know, restoring humanity. I thought that was a really great way to talk about how we connect with families and connect that a little bit to your anti-racism work. Because I remember reading Kendi and Kendi talking about that, you know, racism doesn't, I'm going to paraphrase here, but racism isn't because of individual bigotry. It's a system and the individual bigotry is a, is a result of the system, not the system as a result of individual bigotry. Mm -hmm. I feel like a good way to start to break that down is, you know, humanizing each other individually because then we start humanizing each other in system in systems. Mm -hmm. If we no longer see parents as a monolith, but we see them as 30 individual parents I just had conversations with, I'm gonna build systems in my class and maybe if an administrator does this in their school, that'll start breaking down those racist and patriarchal systems. Where do you see um, humanity placing, going into kind of your anti-racism work? How do you see that in regards to systems that are you know, a lot harder to break down than just a personal relationship to build? Hmm. That's a really interesting question. I think you know that my theoretical lens that I work from is critical race theory. I'm mm -hmm. not, I'm not um, hiding that from anybody, right? And that's what I teach, that's what I breathe, that's the way I think. But I also think that there's a value within critical race theory and a value that is taught that, that a lot of people that have been social activists have shown us, but we have never really called out as it is, and that is sacrificial love. Like, how much are we willing to give up of ourselves to be able to love that other individual to the best way that they can be loved rather than what I'm comfortable with, right? Or what I need. And, and I'm very specific in the sacrificial parts of that love. And I think the sacrificial love is the thing that restores humanity, right? And I think that's something that's been missing a lot in our education system. We can be really good as a teacher educator. We, we can teach you all the strategies. We can teach you all the all the sequencing, we can teach you all the reading of the, uh, the, the state standards, you can have all the books, all the theory, right? But you know who a good teacher is by the way that they love their students and they love their parents, okay? I think without a doubt, I would like you to quickly just define critical race theory for people who may not understand that terminology. Oh, critical race theory is, uh, theoretical framework that is based on understand and it has specific tenets and the tenets uh, make sure to question anything and everything basically uh, it is rooted in law uh, and is about the meeting of justice and law with restoration one of the tenets of critical race series is interest convergence as an example and interest convergence dictates that uh, whoever is in power has to be willing to give something up that they see as a benefit for themselves for change to be created, right? So when we talk about what does anti-racism look like in a school, uh, we have to say also, what is a parent willing to give up that they see as a benefit for themselves and for their own child that benefits the whole community? There has to be a benefit. A sacrificial love. That yeah. what are we all willing to give up to to make our community better? Can you think of a, a good example of sacrificial love that you've seen in schools? Either something from your life, or something that you've seen from maybe another parent or teacher, or something that impacted you. Something that you know, when a listener's hearing like, "I want to do sacrificial love," or "That's too hard for me." What does it look like to you? I think. I think the best, one of the best examples that I've seen, honestly, that I, I most of my experiences with middle school and high school, right? Um, but now as a parent of a child that's in the elementary level, uh, my kids 
kindergarten teacher, Cristina Emanuele, who moved back to Puerto Rico uh, in the child's in the Spanish immersion school. Uh, she did sacrificial love daily with her, with those babies, with those five and six years old. And the, the way that I saw that she did sacrificial love is that she like would hug them. If they were having a rough day, she would hug them because that's what they needed at that age. Mm-hmm. She taught them about Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. She taught them about climate crisis and they did a, like a little walkout protest and on the playground. It was incredibly adorable, right? Just stating that your child, it's, even though they're five or six, they're not too little to understand these big concepts that will affect them in the future, right? It's not just teaching the ABCs, but it's also teaching the realities of this world knowing that there's going to be parents that completely disagree with you and will try to get you fired and will try to remove you. But knowing that in the back of your mind, if there's enough people that are supporting you, that you're doing the right thing as well, right? Teaching should be controversial. And I think we expect teaching to not be controversial. But teaching should cost questioning that's how we get to higher level thinking and critical understanding teaching should be problematic i i could agree and you know i i welcome that when i teach about black lives matter there's always students who question me and i like those students questioning me even if i don't agree with them or whatever i'm not going to shoot down a a student questioning me the only issue I come up with if a student doesn't show the humanity towards their fellow students and teachers. But in questioning things, why is it this way? Why do people feel that way? When especially in your middle schooler, that's when you have to say the dumb stuff. You have to create a safe space to say the dumb stuff. So they can say, why do you think that? Why is that something that's coming to your mind? Is that something you've heard? Is that something you've come up with on your own? Because they're just figuring it out on their own. Uh, I just think most of us are, honestly. I think we should be able to ask, why is that for ourselves as adults? I think because we haven't asked, why do you believe what you believe? Is that we're able to go into a very easily like, oh, that person believes that. So I understand and therefore I'm gonna hold on to it without being able to research it further ourselves, right? Um, because it's easier just to just say, oh, that makes sense to me, right? And, and end it at that without taking the time to to research it even further, knowing what gives me great hope is that our brains are always growing. Our brains are always learning. Our brains can't change and shift. Keep adding synapses, keep putting those wrinkles in, huh? Oh, that's right, that's right. I have a couple, two more questions for you today. First one's a big one. Okay. What, I kind of talked about this at the beginning of what you do to make an anti-racist school, but I want you to, Fast forward 10, 15 years, what does an anti-racist school look like? When you walk in the doors as a parent, a teacher, a superintendent, office worker, okay. what so, do you see? Um, what does it look like or what does it feel like? What does it feel like is probably a better one. Okay, so clarity in message there. Um, what does it feel like? I think an anti-racist school looks like a place in which people can disagree. I think an anti-racist school feels like a place in which it's safe to disagree with one another, but we're willing to sacrifice for the benefit of the whole. I think an anti-racist school is a place in which we have teachers that represent and equally represent our student body, right? I have uh, an anti-racist school looks like when I think, I cannot even think of a school because I'm thinking of a system. As a system, what I would think is that we have enough and we have created enough teachers as well who are BIPOC that don't hate school. I think we have a shortage right now of BIPOC educators because we have taught our kids to hate school. They have never had a good experience. Why would you want to go back and be a teacher if you had a horrible experience in school as a bike park kid? 
also LGBTQIA plus kid too, putting it out there, right? Yeah, no, without a doubt. Plus the, you know, low teacher salaries, you know, as a history of patriarchy, because it was never meant to be the primary breadwinner job. It was for oh. the woman to go do while the man worked, quote unquote. Yeah. You don't see my young woman. I'm plus you started bearing children, right? Exactly. And then it ended, right? Somebody else came in, right? Um, I think an anti-racist school looks like a school in which parents are willing to say hello to one another, okay? Uh, even if it takes two more minutes of their day. And the reason why I say that is because at our school, I have noticed that the Latinx non-English speaking parents stand as close to the wall as possible to be out of the way of people that are coming in and out of the building, right? And we're lined up against the wall having a chat, right? And people are just around their business and it just like you are focused, drop off, come back, blah, blah. Not to say that that's necessarily bad, but can we allow room for two more minutes, right? To just say hello and to rip away from those walls. I think an anti-racist school looks like a place in which kids can be safe and sane to a white teacher. I think what you're doing is racist. And the white teacher saying, I am sorry. Can you tell me why? What does that look like? And I'm willing to modify myself if this is the case, right? And admitting that the, the reality is as a white educator that what you're probably doing is racist and it feels like racism rather than saying, oh, shoot, I can't, I can't do that, right? I need to stop whatever I'm doing and, oh, this attacks my soul or my identity and who I am and looking at the big picture, right? I think uh, an anti-racist school looks like a school that has a counselor too on staff. It has a nurse full time. It has not just a principal, but also a vice principal, okay? And it's not based on numbers, but it's based on needs of the students, okay? Um, I think an anti-racist school looks like a secretary or a team of secretaries that speak multiple languages to meet all the needs of the school, right? So if you have a high, you have Spanish, English, Vietnamese, Somali, whatever it is, right? You have a team of secretaries that are doing all of that. So then that team of secretaries is, are able to answer all the phones and also make all the copies that are needed and get all the coffee and be able to assist because secretaries are an integral part of how a school runs, right? Oh, yeah, oh, without a doubt. I mean, me befriending the secretaries at my school is what got me through my first year. I can't tell you how many jams they, they na helped me navigate that were, I mean, there are heroes. Yeah, and I think an anti-racist school looks like when the janitor is praised for their job publicly and they are seen as people that are integral in the functioning of what that school works and what it looks like on a daily basis, right? And I think an anti-racist school looks like in a place in which BIPOC teachers are able to say that is a microaggression and they have an administrator that backs them up mm -hmm. because the reality of BIPOC educators taking on microaggressions on a daily basis is outstanding to me. I think an anti-racist school is one that involves and continues to grow and apologizes when they have made mistakes and involves community input and all. And they're reading and learning together and I think an anti-racist school is a place in which a kid can say, I have five people that love me in this building. Rather than just one, we've been hoping for one. I'm saying, no, I want five. I want a kid to have five people that say, that I can feel confident that kids can say, those people love me. Oh, I think those are all amazing answers. I think, you know, those things are, go back to your sacrificial love and your humanity that seems to be such so central to kind of everything that you're basing a lot of a lot of the, your answers have gone back to this humanity and sacrificial love and kind of this this idea which i really like i 
I'm going to add two more just because it's, you know, it's my show and I get to have some opinions. I want, I want every student's needs to be met. So if that student is disruptive in class, I don't want to send that student to ISS. I want to send to that student so they get the social emotional help they need or the reading help they need or the listening help they need or that cool down period they need and then bring brought back to the class. I don't want to send that kid off and ostracize a kid because you know those behavioral issues for a 12, 13 or 14 year old are not because they're bad kids. There are no bad 12, 13, 14 year olds. They have something they need to deal with and we don't have the resources at school to help them. Mm -hmm. And it, 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 as a teacher, it was the hardest thing when the student was so disruptive that I couldn't teach. So I removed them from the classroom and I did it seldom, but sometimes I had to because there was no way to teach the 29 other students, knowing I was sending that student to a place that was not going to help them. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was painful because keeping them in that classroom meant 29 students did not learn. Sending that one off meant that one just got worse. And it's, mm -hmm. it's a terrible choice for a teacher to have to make. I have never sent a student out. Not once. I did. But, but, which I'm very proud of myself for saying that, honestly. And I'm not saying it to toot my own horn, but I was working with high schoolers too, right? Uh, big guys and ladies that could take me any time, right? But I'd rather pass my class, pause my class for five minutes and say, look, what's going on? Take a moment to breathe right here. But you cannot do this right now. This is just not okay for everybody and you know it, okay? And I think, I don't know why, but maybe the students saw the love that I had for them, that I wanted to learn, that, that I, I wanted them to do better. I wanted, I, I cared for them. I didn't want them to be removed. I let them see my tears of the love that I had for them. That, that I never had a kid removed. I never did. I never had to send a student away. And after we had a real talk, we could come back in and keep going with class. We work out a deal. But I think within this, they saw my humanity. They saw the, the pain that I carried for them and the love that I had for them. And if I needed to cry, I cried. I did, I didn't care that, that I'm an adult and I'm bawling and I'm just saying, I just love you so much. And I think your brain is so worth learning this. And I want you to go forward. But it always came back and they stayed in the class and it was fine. And they became my biggest allies. And I think, I think teachers are made to choose on a daily basis what to do and what, what costs. And that just saddens me so much, saddens me. Because I think society has taught us that we should choose a 29 over the one. No, I agree. And, you know, every time I did, I, I'm not going to say I didn't send a skate kid out. I did um, last year. It was seldom. I felt like it was, you know, rare. It was not my go-to. Um, but every time I did, I felt terrible about it. Always followed up. Always tried to figure out what we could do to restore that. And um, it was, I still don't like that I did it. I still don't like, I think of what else could I have done? And sometimes, you know, in the aftermath, I thought, okay, I could have done this. Sometimes I felt like, no, maybe I think that was the right choice for that, just that right then. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not going to ask the last question because that's a great place to end um, mm -hmm. for this. And as you know, on this program, we're, we're not beholden to the first thing we said. Um, we'll talk again in one to two weeks. Um, we'll go back and listen to this and, you know, both pick an idea that we want to talk more about. Thank you very much for your time today. And I look forward to talking to you next week. And I can I say one last thing? Of course. I think I'm seeing you and because I know you, right? I can see this dilemma of I sent that kid out, right? And I think I want to encourage you in saying you did that, but that doesn't mean that that defines you. 
as well as an educator. And I want you to know that I care for you deeply and your journey as an educator, as you're learning and growing, and that I, I want you to do better because I know you can. I know you can. Thank so. You. And that ended part one of the interview. Uh, we went both went back and listened to the interview, and here's part two. Well, welcome back. It's been a couple weeks since I've been talking to Marta, and we both went back and listened to the first half of the interview and um, pulled out the things that we found that were the most interesting. We discussed it a little bit before, and what I really wanted to ask you, Marta, is I wanted you to expand a bit on critical race theory. When do you kind of explain again what it is and why you think that's the best path forward for equity in our schools? Well, critical race theory um, is it examines society and culture as it relates to race, law, and power. And having those specific things are very foundational to the creation of the United States, uh, specifically the educational system which I think creates a critical lens on the educational system itself. Um, one of the things that can be decided within critical race theory is that the educational system is founded on white supremacy and critical race theory because it examines law, race and power and how it was created, creates a real window in being able to assess that and criticize it openly. Um, yeah. I think that's a good. I think that's a good definition because I, it really goes into systems, and there was a great article in the New Yorker. Um, I'll post on my Instagram page that talked about the change in the word white supremacy. How it doesn't just mean the Klan anymore, but it's been used as a synonym for systems that support the power, the current power structure that was created for mainly white men. And so I, I see the way you look at critical race theory as this is the best way to be able to dismantle those systems or at least analyze those systems so you could find tactics to dismantle them or reform them in different ways. Um, I think there's ways that we could blow them up and rebuild them, but I also think that there's you know, certain places where you know, maybe a tweak here or there or a tweak there will actually suffice. Do you think that the whole system needs to be blown up or do you think that it just, we need to reform it. Oh, that's a big question. That's a huge question. It's a it's a it's a binary. Just ask say one of the two. Oh, kidding. Um, I think is it, it cannot be a, a it ha, if I'm using the critical race theory lens, right? It has to be yes and okay. So yes, blow it up and reform it. It cannot be one or the other. It has to be a combination of both. That said, we I think what a lot of people forget about the educational system is that the educational system in the U.S. was not created for anyone like you and I. The educational system was created for white males that had a lot of money, that were affluent, that were to guide the nation of where it was to go. It wasn't created for people that we see in the everyday streets, right? So when we are when we look at white supremacy and the rooting of it, we're also saying that there has to be intersectionality within it of gender and of race and of social economic power that is created. So the education system was not meant for us. It isn't meant for us. So how can we just reform something that was just, that was not initially meant for us? It interests me about this question right now is that we're at this time in the world with COVID, with distance learning, where there's gonna be a rebuilding to do after online education. There's going to be, a, if we're going to reform the system or rebuild the system or blow up the system, this may be our time to do it. Yeah. And I think that right now we're learning the, how different systems work and when the system is disrupted. So we're in disruption. Now we're, most of us are all online, either working from home or doing school from home. 
And you had mentioned to me one of the things you wanted to expand upon was kind of the humanity we have in this kind of online education, in this online world. And I wonder if you could think about how can we take this time where we're all online more probably than we've ever been mm -hmm. and use that to restore the humanity we see in each other, mm -hmm. but also to use it as a springboard to kind of um, rebuild our education system. I think that it can be done, but it's going to be difficult. Okay. Here's the reason why is even in this, uh, this time of unequilibrium as an educational system and as parents and I've heard is what we desire and teachers. So what we desire is metrics and boundaries and structures, right? So even though we have, we have the opportunity to build something new, we still want to know ahead what, the, what that news should look like or the, what's the ending goal for that. While critical race theory says you can't do the rebuilding of something new unless you have the input of all, of all stakeholders. And they all have to do, have a clear equal stake or clear cost or loss of power, right? Uh, to mm -hmm. be able to build something new. Mm -hmm. That's the interest convergence that has to occur. Um, and what I wonder is that um, we cannot we cannot say that we're going to destroy the system because we don't have enough people who are willing to destroy it as it is. Because we're concerned of wanting and keeping that system that has so been in part of who we are that to create something completely new is unfathomable. Mm -hmm. It's un it's so unclear that it's distressing how clear that could be right and there's so many people in power and so many people in daily life also that that just are like i want it to look like this i want it to look like that i want to know how many hours exactly my kid needs to be on the computer and i don't want my kid to be in any computer at all right so but all of those voices are valuable while the state is saying students need to be in our computer at least 2.5 hours a day, right? So mm -hmm. even then, the, the metrics have been set, right? And we have people revealing against those metrics according to what it's considered good teaching by, by the standards. So we can't, I don't think destroying is gonna happen now. Reforming could, but there's gonna be a need to be used, get used to being to the instability of what reform looks like. Because eventually we're gonna go back to a classroom. And what our souls and bodies are gonna wanna do is to go back to the way things used to be. And we know that the way things used to be are not equitable. That's a big fear of mine, I see we're trying to mimic classroom life and online life right now. And you had mentioned you really wanted to talk more about the humanity and digital world. And I think we're losing some of that with how we're teaching right now. So I'd love for you to expand upon kind of your idea from what you took from the first interview and wanting to expand upon, yeah, bringing humanity to the digital world. Well, I think in, in our first interview, we talked about the, the notion that you were mentioning that we, you were calling parents and you were talking to them and um, because you needed to know if they had access and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I find it interesting that the, the thing that we said is the worst, right? The antithesis of relying on technology to the antithesis to humanity is technology, right? Robotic. But we need that to be able to create humanity and relationship at this time. Mm -hmm. And we're using that as a tool to be able to restore humanity to one another mm -hmm. when that has been available all along. So again, we can't say it is an either or. It has to be both. 
which I think ties in well with kind of the reform or revolution, whichever way we go, because we are going to have to be more connected in the future. Even when we go back to school, I'm sure people will be more reactive, keep their kids from home. School's going to have to follow kids much more now than it has before. Plus, I bet we see more people move. We've seen this always with refugee communities and migrant farm communities. And we've never been able to kind of solve that problem for the students who will have to move constantly mm -hmm. because of their families, because of war, because of famine, mm -hmm. because of whatever calamity is making them move. Mm -hmm. School has always fell to the wayside. There's never been a way for a school to follow a student the way that a job can or the way that um, other things can. Students had to be the new kid sometimes multiple times a year. Mm -hmm. I've thought a lot about that over the years in watching you know, Syrian refugees pour into Turkey and Lebanon, um, migrant farm families going up and down the West Coast. How can we integrate those families better? How can education follow those kids? How can we make sure that those families are getting what they need and when a student walks into a classroom one, on one day, they're not starting all over again. Mm -hmm. I think that's Do you a, have any ideas about that's that? That's a great question. I think that's a fantastic question. And I think you're talking is, how do we move from the, the, the validating of the humanity to the creation of community, right? Mm -hmm. And I think we, the, the digital gives us the opportunity to create that community. The digital allows us to be able to connect in a way. What is it to say mm -hmm. that a child cannot be part of our school system and say, I'm going, I, I'm a migrant farmer. I need to travel with my family to harvest Idaho potatoes, uh, but mm -hmm. I still have my portable Wi-Fi device that the school gave me and I'm still able to keep on with that class. So there's no break in understanding or knowledge or or the community that was being built this idea that each student has to be in a classroom attached to a desk within a building is a race within a digital system right is completely is completely deleted right and i think this is one of the things i'm hopeful for from this covid time is that we have just a much more nimble education system mm -hmm. we we are much more flexible to give students what they want i had students last year who did nothing in class all year and then excelled in online i had students who excelled in class all year and floundered online and when we go back when covid is over and we're able to go back that doesn't mean we should just go back the way we were we should keep that flexibility in our system and take what we've learned and I hope schools and teachers and administrators right now are grabbing all the good things that we are learning about online education and banking those and creating those lessons learned so that when we do create that kind of parallel system or integrated system or mixed match system, whatever the student wants, that we're not just trying to mirror a classroom in a, on a computer or mirror a computer on, in a classroom, but we're really tailoring it to the strengths and weaknesses of each platform. Yeah, and I think that's where the reformation happens, right? But mm -hmm. it has to be willing individuals have to be willing to change, okay? And that I think that's the hardest part of change is our own pride gets in the way. Uh, we have teach some teachers that have said, I've been teaching for 20 years and I've been doing just fine, right? And the reality is that as, as a professor in teacher education, my, my idea is that every single semester that you get a new set of teaching te students, then your teaching needs to change because the students are different. Mm -hmm. You're not, but the students are. So their needs will be different. You can't say the students from today are the same or were the same 10, 15 years ago. No, without a doubt. They, they, they're not. They're absolutely not. They have more access to resources, more access to information, more access to, uh, to a global perspective. And more distractions. And more, absolutely. Or different distractions, right? 
-hmm. like global versus uh, uh, local distractions, right? Of what that mm -hmm. looks like. And I, I think that that means that as educators, we should be willing to embrace change and be constantly practicing critical introspect to, to analyze how do I need to change my practice to benefit the students that are in front of me rather than, oh, I did this last year and it worked out really well. I'm gonna do exactly the same thing again and hope it works well again. When we already know that that might not happen without taking into consideration the kids that are in front of you, right? You might have the context of what it should look like. I'm not saying throw away, you know, if you're doing Romeo and Juliet and, and say throw it away, but you have to be aware that there's other books out there that reflect Romeo and Juliet the same way with a little different shift of lens that could be better to meet the needs of the students that are in front of you. Are you still not teaching the basics of Romeo and Juliet? Yeah, you are. Are you not still not teaching the, the knowledge of World War I or World War II or US econom economics, whatever it is? Yes, you are. But we have to change the context knowing that things are changing. Things are changing. I have two questions uh, left for today. First one, with everything we've talked about, and obviously you're very passionate about this issue, what's next for you? What's the next thing you're gonna do in your journey to help realize all these ideas? I think uh, for myself, I need to finish my doctorate in the next year uh, and continue working with pre-service teachers. Um, really love working with pre-service teachers. Uh, as our educational system is changing, but I think I need to be more active in mentoring um, BIPOC and queer educators as they're still a great minority in, in our educational system. Um, that said, there's a lot of hope that I've found in working with a lot of white males, right? Like you. Yeah, right? I was gonna say, you know, it's, uh, I agree with you. We need a lot more representation. Uh, we, we want our teachers to look more like our students. Yeah. And we make, need to make our white teachers better. Yeah, we do, because uh, white teachers still have a long time left. Um, and I think in this relationship with specifically white males have found a lot of hope uh, in the sense that we have, we can have open, straightforward conversations after we have our initial spat of like, oh, I disagree with you, I agree with you, blah, 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 blah. And then it really a true friendship forms of collaboration and, um, of wanting to learn from one another and knowing that we're both imperfect in our ideas. And I think in, in, in that we validate each other's humanity, right? It's, it goes exactly. back to, to, to validating that humanity of one another, right? That said, there's a specific duty that I do have to my Latinx uh, students, right? And, mm -hmm. and the reality is that I, I do need to mentor more pre-service educators that are BIPOC and queer because um, Latina women with uh, a doctoral degree make up less uh, than 1% of the population of individuals in the USA that have doctoral degrees. So. Um, Use it. Yeah, exactly. That said, that's not the only place where I, I would love to do more work on policy assessment um at the the state level i think that would be a lot of fun i know policy and data fun right but it is for me because but i really want to use what my dissertation is which is color evasive language and policy educational mm -hmm. policy and really address the way that we have allowed these systems to continue and uh, the color evasive policy language to continue to create 
barriers and continued achievement gap that we have created and actively participated in while always questioning our complicity. And I think that's what needs to happen a lot too. Like we need to question our complicity. We are complicit in some way or another. We refuse to believe that that's the case, but it's true. It's true. Well, that sounds very exciting. And for the final question I have, I have the same final question for all my guests. Okay. Because I think probably secretly I want to run a food podcast or a food blog. Oh boy. Explain a really great meal you've had recently. What was the context? What did you eat? It doesn't just have to be about the food. It could be with the people you had it with or where you had it or. A really great meal. So I wouldn't say it qualifies as a meal itself, but there's this thing that I have two adopted sisters Sarah and Kat. Sarah is a shepherdess in the San Juan Islands. And Katrin is a Estonian immigrant who's in tech. We are all completely different and we don't speak the same um, professional language, but we all love each other deeply. We all look completely different from one another too. Um, but we came together because of knitting. Knitting is the thing that drives us together and um, the thing that has bonded us. And they're, they're my sisters. I call them my sisters. And when every time we get together, we always have Florida jeans pie and a cup of tea. And there's just something so comforting, which I just got to do that a week ago. Uh, to be able to have pie with a cup of tea with people that know your soul and your heart so deeply and so entrenched in who you are that with each bite, it just feels like there is comfort. There's just comfort. And it doesn't... We argue, we fight, we love each other fiercely, but that pie is just so settling for the three of us. And it's, it just binds us to one another. So now we're raising our children all together. And, you know, I call them my nieces and my nephews and we all yell at them when they get in trouble together and they're playing uh, too rough with one another or they're being kind with one another and we buy them matching clothes because we can (laughs) (laughs) they're so little they don't hate us right for doing that but I don't know a good slice of pie and a cup of tea that sounds great thank you so much for your time thank you so much for your wisdom and um, I really enjoyed talking with you and thank you all for listening yeah thank you